This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed a reunion dinner and it went well for you. And each Sunday as we gather, it is a reunion of God's people until the day when our Lord will come and we finally will reunite with Him. So today as we come to His Word, let us commit ourselves to Him, ask Him to open our minds, engage us, and that our hearts can be engaged to His truth. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for the celebration of this week that we had As Christians, it only reminds us of the day where we will see you again. But in the meantime, Father, we pray that your word will ring true to our ears and our hearts. We pray that your spirit will engage us in our minds and will strengthen us in our hands. So Father, as we open up your word, let your word rest in our hearts and not go off uh, without changing us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, what is the right way to live our lives? What is the right way to live your life? If you ask this question, the results that will come out will be countless. The famous Socrates said this, it's not living that matters, but living rightly. And many will nod their heads. The late um, American rock guitarist by the name Jimi Hendrix, he said this, I'm the one who's going to die when it's time to die, so let me live my life the way I want to. Let me live my life the way I want to. And, and many will look at him and they'll, they'll nod their heads. How about you? How about me? What is the right way for you and me to live our lives? Now, on the end of one pendulum, some would have a long checklist of moral and legal uh, obligations that they'll keep to live the right life. On the other pendulum, you have people who get offended if you ask this question because there's no one right way. My way is the best way. Dear friends, welcome back to the Sermon on the Mount this morning because we come back to a series of Jesus' teaching about the right way to live. Jesus was sitting at a mountainside teaching His disciples the way of living as the heavenly people and crowds were gathering there listening as well. So disciples and crowd, they are mixed together and they are listening. Some, their hearts were burning as Jesus speaks to them and reaches them. Others were scratching their head, wondering what he's saying. Last week, Jesus said that blessed are his disciples, the kingdom people, because they will exchange their spiritual bankruptcy they are mourning, they are meekness, they are longing for righteousness. They will exchange all of that for the kingdom of heaven, for comfort, for inheritance, for fullness. Last week, Jesus unpacks how blessed are his disciples as they express mercy, their loyalty to God, proclaiming the good news, persevering in persecution. Jesus says this will end up with great rewards in heaven because they reveal that you are the children of God. So today as we come back to more of Jesus' teaching about the living, the way to live the heavenly life, let us listen, but let us listen and notice that Jesus, as He speaks on the Sermon on the Mount, what He's really doing, because it will be a mistake for us to listen and start taking our paper out and say, 
another checklist for us to do to get into the heaven. Because Jesus is not giving a prescription of a checklist. He's giving a description of the way heavenly people live. Let me say that again. Jesus is not giving another prescription of a checklist for you to do to get into heaven, but a description of those who belongs to the kingdom of heaven. So as Jesus uh, speaks to them, to put it in a way, he's saying, you are to live the life of who you are. So now as Jesus continues, those who are not kingdom people, as they listen to Jesus' words as mere checklists, they'll start getting confused, perhaps annoyed. At some point, they will respond in rejection. But those who have been listening are those who are the kingdom people. As they listen and listen, they'll start to understand what God's word really meant for them. It's no wonder as Jesus began teaching at the, at the, at the, mountain, on the mountain side, people start to ask, well, is Jesus giving a new teaching? Is he obsoleting the law and the prophets and come with something new? Of which Jesus puts it bluntly, no. So look at today's passage from verse 17 onwards as Jesus continues his teaching. In fact, let me read verse 17 for us. If you have your Bible, it would be great to look. If not, it might be on the screen for you. Verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Do not think, says Jesus, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, what is the law and what is the prophets? Well, the law would have included the rules, the regulation, the Ten Commandments. The law was another way of saying the five, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuchs, the books of Moses. But collectively, the law and the prophets together, they really signify the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. They represent the whole scriptures that God has given. And Jesus here, he's saying, I've not come to give you a different scripture. Rather, I've come to accomplish the scripture, the whole of God's word. Because the whole Old Testament scripture is pointing you to me. And indeed, Jesus will accomplish all that God says as we move on to the rest or to the end of Matthew. Because it started with Matthew 1 verse 1 and you reach the climax upwards and build up when Jesus will die on the cross to pay the price to make peace possible between humans, us, and God. And he makes heaven available to us. And at his and his resurrection and his victory, he will also offer a victory from death to those who are following him. So here as we come to Jesus' teaching, he brings up two points about the Old Testament scriptures. One is he's here to fulfill God's word. That's verse 17, 18. And he moves on to explain God's word, the spirit of God's word, so that his people and those who follow him will be able to understand and live the heavenly life. So look at verse 19 and 20 as I read for us. Look at verse 19 first. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The people who belongs 
to the kingdom of heaven, they do not set aside the law. Rather, having understood the law as Jesus unpacks, they will start to practice and live the original intent of the law to live like their king, to live like the one who will bring them into the kingdom. And that's why verse 20 comes in. He says, Jesus says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I just want to pause at verse 20 for this moment for help, to help us to think. Because this, this doesn't sound shocking to us, but this would have shocked the people up the mountains if it's a steep cliff. Some might even roll off a little bit as Jesus says this. Because who else can be more righteous amongst them than the Pharisees and the laws? Who are those who will meet all the checklists to get into heaven if there is a checklist? To get in, well, they will be the ones who count the number of footsteps on Sabbath to make sure they, they've just done enough but not over it. They're the ones that will fast the most, those that will say the most pious prayers in city square. If you don't really know how to pray, just go to city square and listen a few times and you get the best way to pray. They're the most knowledgeable among the Jews. But yet, verse 20, Jesus puts it right out. I tell you that your righteousness must surpass the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or you will not get in. Now, how can anyone be more righteous than the religious elites? How are you going to do it? How are the disciples going to do it as they listen in on Jesus? Well, this is how it goes. The righteousness measured by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is this. It is this long checklist that measures themselves against all that the law has mentioned. They're not too bothered about the heart, but as long as you meet the list, the more checks you have, the better it is. In fact, it doesn't matter how dark or evil your heart is. If you want to get away with how your heart looks like, follow this checklist of righteousness. And it can be really frightening, because this is how it goes. You and I, we can have really dark hearts. But if we wrap ourselves, our hearts, with enough good things, we actually can look like we are going to heaven. To put it in our modern context, we can attend church every Sunday without fail, rise or shine, fever or not. We can serve as teachers. We can be leaders. We can be musicians for decades. We can give lots of money. We can do a lot and fill up a lot of checklists that a lot of everyday professing Christians will struggle even to meet. But Jesus says, by doing that, it doesn't bring you into heaven. You must surpass more than that. The religious elites, as they have the checklist, Jesus now comes in to say, I'm going to do a heart check on how you are. So what does the righteous life really look like? Jesus is going to give a series of examples and we're going to look at them um, and run with them. So look with me as King Jesus unpacks the true spirit of the law, beginning with the first one from verse 21 to 22. Let me read to you and look at it with me. Verse 21, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, 
So the checklist righteousness is, you have heard, and it goes on, you shall not murder. That's not enough, Jesus says, but I tell you, God looks much deeper than the act of murder. God looks at the heart. Indeed, if you harbor anger towards a brother or sister, you are already subjected to judgment. If the anger manifests into scorns and you call your brother Raka, meaning empty one, you are answerable to the court. If your anger and scorn escalates to that hatred in you and you make yourself a judge and say, you fool, Jesus says you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. The Pharisee checklist keeps the law, the letter of the law, do not murder, but the king looks at the spirit of the law into the heart. To the Pharisees, it's enough not to cross the line to murder. To Jesus, the outward expression of murder is just a manifestation of what is inside the heart. So to Jesus, there is no place for the seed of murder to be in the hearts of kingdom people. Those with the seeds of murder are not suitable for the kingdom. So he goes right to the heart of the problem. Or should we say, he goes right to the problem of our heart. In fact, Jesus goes on in verse 23 to 26. If there's any unsettled anger among two of you disciples, you have to stop whatever sacrifice you're giving and get reconciled to each other. Now here's here's an exercise. Are, Are you a Christian? Are you a disciple of Jesus? If you are, imagine with me this. Our service... It's ending. The collection bag is going down. You're putting your hand in the pocket. Um, you're going to give your 10%. Your kids, some of the kids say, okay, I'm going to give this. And everybody's getting ready. And at the corner of your eye, you saw this brother or sister that you're actually angry with for a day, for quite a long time. And as the bag comes towards you, Jesus is saying, stop. You can almost feel everything kind of freeze. And then your eyes look there. And Jesus says, go and reconcile with that brother or sister first. Then come back to sacrifice. You know, this is really counterintuitive. Because the world will say this, if you're guilty, if you're angry, give more money and that will make you feel better. But Jesus says, your giving at that point has no value at all. It does no good to you. For where is the room to give thanks to God? Your heart is filled with anger, with bitterness. Where is the room to give God all the praises when you're hating the brother or sister that Christ has also died for? The act of sacrifice is not as important as the heart of the one who gives. Now, this is going to make it awkward, make it awkward later when the offering bag goes down, but... I think Jesus' point is there. He's more concerned about our hearts than our pockets. Because what we give is really expression of thanksgiving. But if the thanksgiving is not there, Jesus says, work that out. Now Jesus goes on, so we move on to adultery and divorce. This is a difficult one. Look at verse 27 and 28 with me first. You have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks and a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, to the Pharisees, they draw the line of adultery this way. A person cannot have sex with anyone who is not his or her spouse. So the line is clear. 
Sex outside of marriage is sin. Well, we can't even take this for granted in our modern society anymore. But if we think this is a high standard, Jesus has a much higher standard than that. He demands more. He says, the heart that indulged in lust has already sinned. The religious who lived that Pharisee checklist, by giving that command, leaves plenty of room to compromise. I can last as long as I don't act it up, but Jesus says there is no room for that. The one harboring lustful thoughts, letting their desire brew, has already committed adultery in the heart. Now this verse has caused great pains for many young men and women, old men and women. So let, let's set this a little bit clearer. Jesus is not saying that as you walk along the road, if someone pretty comes and you just look like that, you have committed sin because it would have been better just to be blind. That's not what God has made us. We get to enjoy His beauties. But when the person has long passed, your mind is still brewing. When your friend and colleague has long gone, and the plot is still developing, whether you realize, whether it can be realized or not. And this is as true for men as it is true for women. It is as true visual as it is true relational fantasies. So dangerous is lasting that Jesus gave this shocking analogy. Listen to it. 29. If your eye, right eye causes you to stumble, gorge it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, if Jesus is not downplaying his expectation, we must be careful not to downplay that as well. Well, the gorging of our most important eye, the, the, the pulling out of our most important hand, is to emphasize that the kingdom of heaven has no place for lust, for adultery, for things that are not what the Lord has expected of His people. Now by the time, I don't know if you feel the weight of it, I start to feel the weight of it, but can you see that as Jesus says, but I tell you, He's starting to silence the voices of those that Jesus, that things that Jesus is obsoleting the law because He's making it more real. And do we see Jesus really means that those who belong to, to the kingdom of heaven needs to have a righteousness that is greater than the way the Pharisees does it. Because the kingdom of people do not live by checklists. The kingdom of people live by the spirit of what God's law has intent for them. Do we start to realize it's not a quantitative difference between the religious people and Christians, but it's a qualitative difference that one goes on checklists and one searches the heart deeply. Jesus has more to say, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries us, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. As you read this, the question might pops in, what is this certificate of divorce? What, what's the use of that at all? Well, it actually comes back to um, Moses' law in Deuteronomy. I'm going to read to you what Deuteronomy uh, mentions about this. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, he says this, Moses writes, if, if a man marries a woman 
who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he's meant to write her a certificate of divorce. So at first glance, this is being brought into the context of Jesus' time. Well, the Jews are just following Moses' law. Just write a certificate um, to officiate the divorce. But that's not how the original intent of this certificate is meant to do. It's not meant to just make a legal statement. It's also a protection for the woman. As the husband or the man renounces or abandons the wife, he has to give a legal rights that he has done so. So the woman will not be seen as what he, she is not. In fact, um, how, how the, the hearts have turned from Moses' law that there is this oral tradition that the rabbi has given that tries to explain what it means to displease the husband or to uh, be indecent as a woman. So here's one oral tradition that goes as far as this. If, if a woman burns the toast of the husband and displeases the husband, she, he can divorce her. I don't know if, if you're a woman in this modern day, you just take your toaster and just throw it at your husband's head and you toast your own bread. But, but at Jesus' time, it wasn't that case. And Moses' law was what was meant to protect has been used um, to sin. So they could le- be legally pure and have only one wife and say, I'm such a good man, I've only got one wife. Um, well, I've divorced eight times compared to this man with two wives. So he is legally good. And, and not the other man. Now, the, the topic of divorce is a huge topic, and today's sermon cannot fully address, but Jesus does bring out some things about divorce that it is important. Look at, look at verse 32. Because what Jesus is saying, divorce is actually a concession given when the act that betrays the one flesh unit occurs. No further pain gets stacked on betrayals if, if an offended offender does not repent or does not want to seek forgiveness. Divorce is given as a concession when the offense of sexual immorality occurs and tears the flesh apart. But we must add, if you look carefully, Jesus is giving a concession. He's not giving a command. If you're a Pharisee, you see this as a great command, but to Jesus and his people, this is a concession. He's not giving a command. For marriages are intended to be a lifelong union between one sinful man and one sinful woman. What the Lord has joined together should never be dissolved lightly. Now, some of us may have gone through difficult times in marriages, and we have cried out to the Lord. And you can be assured because the Lord God is well aware of the pain in marriages of broken people. God is well aware of being committed and sinned against. God is well aware when someone, the one that he loves commits adultery against him. Because that is the life and the story of us. The story of God reveals his love for us and the story of man reviews our adultery with the world. There's a book uh, called Hosea. In it, it records this prophet by the name Hosea. 
God told Hosea, Hosea, you have to marry this promiscuous woman called Goma. You have to marry her. She's going to commit adultery against you. In fact, to the point she will sell herself to man. But you will go and buy her back and love her. Let me read to you what God said to Hosea in this book called Hosea, chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. I'll just read you this section. The Lord said to me, Hosea, Go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I, Hosea, bought her goma for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lekith of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I will behave the same way towards you. Now, dear friends, the story of Hosea redeeming his wife is shocking. But God says you are to do this to show the world that is my relationship with my people. And if that's not shocking enough to you, as Jesus is speaking this, he is preparing himself to redeem God's people, to redeem for himself an unreliable bride for himself. That he will redeem the church to be his bride at the cost of his life. God detests divorce, not just because he's strict, because marriages reveals his relationship with us. God has given concession when our brokenness and our sinfulness destroy an image, but it was never a command. Because it's a reflection, Christian's marriage is a reflection of God's relationship with the church, with the bride that he loves. Now this topic is, is a big topic, marriage, divorce, remarriage. It's not a topic that we can cover through today, but if it's a topic that troubles you, can I pray and ask that you, you speak to one of the pastors and talk through this together? Because it is an important topic in many of lives but Jesus' point is clear here our righteousness when it comes to marriages and divorce must be way greater than the way the Pharisees have viewed marriages divorce and the law Jesus moves on and so we must in verse 33 Jesus continues you have heard that it was said to the people long ago do not break your oath but fulfill to the Lord the vows you make but I tell you do not swear an oath at all what is Jesus saying here in 33? On the surface, the Pharisaic checklist righteousness tells God's people, uh, you guys don't break the law, especially if it's made to God. But Jesus turns around and says that your words should be truthful enough whether you make an oath or not. In the time of Jesus, oath has become such a complicated thing. If you make an oath to God, you better keep it. If you make an oath to your mom, well, too bad, mom. Jesus says, oath or no oath, your word should be as good as it is. So this passage is not telling us, well, from now on we can't say oath in the legal court because that is the way the law does. But Jesus' point is that our words should hold true because that's how kingdom people live. And he moves on. Revenge 38. You have heard they were said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. 
Now, these verses from 38 to 42 can be easily misunderstood as you read on. Is Jesus asking us to be a floor mat Christians? If someone spit on you, you're going to literally turn around and spit. If someone punch you and say, ah, oh, wait a minute, this side as well, because that's what Jesus says. Well, this is totally not what the passage is talking about. To understand what Jesus is saying, we first come back to where this logic comes from. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In fact, we have read it just now. And let me read this to you again. In Leviticus 24, verse 20, well, Moses says, Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. There you have it. Moses was an angry man after all. It's the law giving license for revenge. And Jesus saying, now the law is wrong, you have to change. Well, if you're, if you're in BTBC for any extended time, that question will come in. Come on, Andrew, what is the context? Well, since you asked this, let me give you the context. Right? In fact, you have already read it. But I'll just read it from 18 to 22, just parts of it. I'll emphasize on the part that we might miss out and emphasize the other one. So let me read and emphasize the portion that we should be. Verse 18, Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution. Life for life. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution. But whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and native born. I am the Lord your God. The original law was never meant to be vengeance. It's actually opposite or vengeance. It was to prevent private revenge by providing restitution. To restore someone's loss is also for fair judgment. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a foreigner, remember as you do your justice, I, the Lord, am watching you. There's no Hollywood-style vengeance for Moses or Jesus. Rather, we are called to relinquish revenge. Because justice and revenge are different. So this passage again is not telling us to reject the justice system, nor to promote doormat syndrome. Rather, Jesus is against the misuse of the law for the sake of revenge, but to leave revenge to the Lord because that is how kingdom people respond. Now as we pause and take our breath after this whole long list, we, we can feel quite overwhelmed and ask, why did Jesus demand so much, leaving no room for compromise? Why is Jesus demanding so much, leaving no room for compromise? Well, the reason is, we are never meant to earn our way into heaven. But rather, the reason is because this is the way kingdom people are meant to live. Because this is a reflection of the one that we are calling Father every day. So look with me as the king says to his disciple in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your father in heaven. The reason Jesus calls for such radical obedience is because those who love God and calls God their father in heaven were meant to reflect the father's image to the rest of the world. We are meant to reflect the Father's image, not by checklists, but by the spirit of how He says 
we are meant to live. The love of the Father for us was costly. And we accept it freely. And that means as we expense out the love like the Father, it's going to cost us. Love for Christian is actually costly. It will cost us when we extend forgiveness to our sin-prone spouse. It will cost us when we decide to forgive instead of taking vengeance. It will cost us when we have to love our enemies and pray for those who are persecuting us. It costs us to love. That the love that contradicts the world, that only the children of the Father of Heaven who have received sufficient love can exercise such love in our lives. So as Jesus is speaking, He's not speaking to everyone. He's speaking to those who have received the Lord's love those who have received the Lord's, who has promised to bring them at the cost of his own life. But now we must recognize, but now we, as we look through this, we, we must recognize as a Christian, it's never a checklist to get it. It's never to do more to be saved. But we are saved to live out a costly love because we have received a costly one. So Jesus points out 46 if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not are not even the tax collectors doing that? No, the world knows love of its own. The way of love by the world adds no value to us. But rather, verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So dear friends, as we conclude this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, let's return to our starter question. What is the right way to live our lives? Now, if you are not yet a Christian, please do not take today's passage as a checklist that you will work hard and get um, approval from God. If you're not a Christian, can I plead with you to get to know Jesus, to first experience the love of God the Father that He has loved for people, to know the Christ who will die for you, even though we know we are not reliable, so that we can be forgiven of sins to offer us a place in His kingdom and to be called His people. If you're not a Christian, can I ask and plead that you will first know Jesus? But if you're a Christian, the right way for us to live then is just to live out who we are. To live out who you are as God's people. To live out the practical righteousness that the Spirit of the Lord teaches us be like Christ. Now, by the time as you listen to this, perhaps some of you feel excited and say, I'm going to do all of that now. But if you're like me, I feel a bit heavy to feel that, actually, God, can I really do this? To feel overwhelmed because we know deep in us, perhaps we'll take a lifetime to look like that. But even if we try our best, there will be dark days. There will be very dark days and dark nights when you can't do it. Or perhaps we have already failed too many times as a Christian. The days when our anger has become in danger of cancerous hatred. The days when lusts have already gotten hold of us. The days when our marriage reveals our brokenness rather than God's love. Those days where we secretly prefer revenge than to forgive. When we struggle to love 
and pray for the, those who are our enemies. On those dark days, my dear brothers and sisters, can I offer us the comfort that Jesus already knows how weak you and I are. And that is how he began his Sermon on Mount. He did not start with this. How did he start? What is the first thing he said in the Sermon on Mount? It's Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right at the start, Jesus says to those, as they want to love and obey God, and says, my God, you know I'm going to fail. I'm not going to be able to do this by myself. And Jesus says, I know. But if you're one like that, you are mine in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Dear friends, as we hold on to Jesus' teaching today, let us remember always that He knows how broken we are. And that's why He came to die for us. But He also knows what we are made to be at the end of the day. And He says, let's begin today. Let's close this time in prayer and ask that the Lord will help us to want to live for Him and like Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today's passage that reviews how possible it is for us to want to live, to look right in front of others, but we're heading to hell. But instead, help us now to recognize and look to Jesus that as we seek to obey Him, that we know that He knows us, that He has already forgiven us, He has already saved us, he has already revealed your love for us. He has already loved us so that we can learn to be like Him. So Father, help us not to be just people who love our neighbors and hate our enemies, but teach us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Teach us to forgive when it's painful and costly. Help us to look to You so that we have the strength to forgive. For His glory pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.